Welcome back, everybody. Thirsty Thursday, number 56. Tonight, we are joined by Mr. Chuck Sheely. I pronounced that correctly? Yes, you do. Sheely, right. Sheely. Okay. Um, so it, when we were getting ready for this episode, I was doing some some looking around. Um, one of our previous guests had, had completed the Georgia Smoke Diver program. And I was like, well, huh, let me learn more about that. So I started typing smoke jumper because that was just what popped into my head and where my fingers were going on the keyboard. And I came to smoke jumpers. I was like, well, this is just as cool. Like we need to get somebody on here um, to talk about that. So I sent an email through, I don't even, I don't remember where the website took me or where it was, uh, but we got in contact with, with Chuck. Um, So we, we are, I am me or myself and the guys that are going to be joining us a little late, Trevor and, um, and Mike are going to be joining us a little later. We are super excited to hear about this um, and hear all about smoke jumping. Um, it's something that we have never, um, like we've, it's never been one of those things that we've, we've had any experience with or exposure to. Um, you know, we do a lot of structural firefighting. I say we do a lot. We, we would always like to do more, but um, it is what it is. Um, so I, I can tell you that we are super excited to hear um, all about the process and, you know, maybe some more stories cause they're going to be different than, than, than our stories. So with that being said, and any further delay, Chuck, would you give us a little intro and a little bit about yourself and yeah. uh, we'll go from there. Okay. I will, but what part I I'm remiss, what part of the country are you in? I'm we're, so I'm actually on the Eastern shore of Maryland over okay. by ocean city. We're on the opposite coast. Okay. Well, this is interesting because, uh, I, I get a lot of, uh, calls from like weather stations and they want to do what smoke jumping is. And I'm talking to people in the East coast and I almost end up saying, you know, as far as smoke jumping goes, we might as well be in China because there's very little knowledge of uh, smoke jumping and wildland firefighter. Uh, We're really separate parts of the country. I'm in, in Chico, California. That's Northern California. Uh, I feel like we're the wildfire capital of the world. Uh, uh, I'm also a track and field official, a coach and that sort of thing. Well, let me give you some background. I, ha- I had a dual career. I was a physical education teacher, a high school track coach and a firefighter. So it, it worked out well for me. I was able to smoke jump and, and fight fires in the summertime, teach in the rest of the year. So that's how I kind of have a, had a dual career. I jumped for 13 seasons. Uh, started out in Southern Oregon at a place called Cave Junction. Uh, Cave Junction was one of the original three smoke jumper bases, started in 1943. I jumped there for about eight seasons, then I went up and jumped for Bureau of Land Management in Alaska, uh, Fairbanks. And after that, I went back down here uh, in Chico and I worked for the Mendocino National Forest as a type two crew supervisor. And that meant it was a perfect job for anybody who was a coach. I I went out and recruited college students and taught them wildland firefighting. And they were what uh, were called on-call crews at that time. In other words, every one of my young people had a pager. They had two hours call. They could work anywhere else. They could be Burger King, McDonald's, but they had to answer the call when it came. Um, it's something the Forest Service is not concerned about uh, nowadays, and that's efficiency and cost. 
this was really a good taxpayer value. In other words, these young people uh, lived in their community and they were two hour call and, and fought fire in the summer. Uh, I started smoke jumping, in, as I say, in Cave Junction, Oregon, and, and did the, uh, that bit there. So, um, Ben, do you, where do you want me to go from here then? So how, um, how did you get into smoke jumping? Like what, like how, what, what was your introduction to that? Yeah. Uh, it was good. I started on what was called, uh, in those days, a tanker crew. And now it's called an engine crew on the Lassen National Forest. That's in Northern California. Uh, I was sitting in the engine one day having to do the three o'clock, 1500 weather report to the dispatcher in, in Susanville. And then uh, over the radio, clear, clear all uh, traffic, uh, smoke jumper operation in, in progress. And so I sat there in that tanker and listened to a, um, a lookout describe these guys jumping into fire. And I said, I am not going to be sitting in this tanker next <laughs> summer at this time. So I just went on and sent out a lot of applications and ended up at uh, Cave Junction was one of the smallest. We only had 24 jumpers there. Uh, Siskiyou Forest, uh, for people on the East Coast, the Siskiyou is uh, some of the highest timber in the United States. We have 200-foot trees in Southern Oregon and Northern California. Um, and I jumped there, as I say, for eight seasons before I transferred up to Alaska. Uh, various reasons for that transfer, mainly more money, more pay. Uh, being a teacher, I was able to uh, almost do as well in three months of the summer as I was able to do teaching for, for nine months. It was kind of a survival thing for yeah. a family. Yeah. So um, I, I before... I'm in my second year full-time as a career firefighter paramedic for the town oh, of Ocean City. Um, before that, I spent 14 years working in a, in a high school as the athletic trainer. Uh, and wow. Then, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then my wife is a uh, eighth grade special ed teacher uh, and we actually met through the volunteer fire service. Uh, um, so we know, we know all about, uh, um, and her, her whole family has um, like all of their careers have been through uh, education. So, Okay, we relate just like yeah. that. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Uh, yes, Super Ben, this is this is good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so how did you go from from that that season being to becoming a smoke jumper? You got applications. What was the like? What was the process like? You know, uh, at that time there weren't all the government rules and regulations, and I just uh, found every smoke jumper base in the United States at that time, uh, there, and there are currently about nine, uh, before we get too far into this smoke jumpers are divided into two sectors. There is forest service smoke jumpers and there are Bureau of land management smoke jumpers and the BLM smoke jumpers started in 1959 in Alaska. So you have okay. a large base in Alaska and a large base in Boise. So I, I just applied and, uh, uh, got picked up. Uh, as I say, the hiring process was pretty straightforward at that time. Um, and uh, that just set me off. It was its just something I had to do. And uh, boy, I moved the family every 
year at the end of uh, school on Friday afternoon, we loaded the trailer in the U-Haul and headed for Oregon or years later, we hopped on the plane and headed for Alaska. It's been a great experience. Oh, wow. So what, I'm, I'm sorry, what's, what's your family? How many, um, how many kids? At that time I had, uh, not that time. I do have th three children. Uh, uh, one, you know, time has moved on. One's a retired deputy sheriff. Uh, the other is athletic director at Lane College in Eugene, Oregon, and our daughter's a school psychologist in Sacramento, California. All right, all right. So you still got the public service uh, through uh, public safety and and through education. That's awesome. You betcha. Yeah, that's great. Um, so so you got like wow that like that's a that's a big move, and you guys would be in either um, at at either one of the smoke jumping bases for the three months that you were off, and then back to California after that? It was. Uh, in Southern Oregon Cave Junction, It's a, at that time it was a logging era, area. Uh, we actually decided we were gonna cut trees rather than burn them. And uh, since that time, you know, in California, I'm doing a little soapbox here. Uh, the logging industry is shut down. People don't realize that trees are like asparagus. They grow. Uh, if you don't remove them from the forest, uh, they're going to go the other way, and that's by burning. Um, yeah. I, I mentioned, you know, I live in Northern California in Chico. Uh, I, it's interesting. I shot a track by shooting a track meet. That means I'm a starter. Mm -hmm. I went to Paradise, California yesterday. It's just up the hill uh, 10 miles. And if uh, people remember or maybe they don't, uh, we had four years ago, we had what was called the campfire. Mm -hmm. uh, a town of 26,000 people wiped off the map in less than a full day. And um, yesterday was the first time I'd been back to Paradise High School to shoot a track meet in four years. And what struck me as I was on that track, uh, that track used to be shaded by these beautiful tall trees. It was just such an aesthetic setting and yesterday it's you know it's wide open yeah. um it just it, it just struck me uh being back up there after kind of like and then the size of the high school we used to have uh 1200 kids at paradise high school it's down to four uh that fire completely devastated the area here uh we had to figure out what we're going to do with a thousand high school students and besides the high school students we got oh the k through eight kids yeah and and where are we going to send them? We had to send them to Chico, all the surrounding towns. Uh, right now in Chico, four years later, our homeless problem is Berserko. Um, I, you know, people said it, it'll be many years before we recover from the effects of the campfire. And then since that time, the Mendocino Forest, where I used to work, which is west of us, uh, burned a million acres two years ago. Mm -hmm. The Dixie Fire, which is east of us, just burned another million acres. Oh, uh, and the pla places where I used to take my wrestling teams up in the mountains, schools are burned, towns are gone. Uh, I think it's hard for the people. I know you have hurricanes and stuff on the East Coast, but it's hard to realize the devastation that we experience from wildfire. Uh, when I went up to Paradise uh, a month after the fire, 
just pick a video of Berlin in 1946 and, and you got it. So um, that's my soapbox, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the, the videos and all that um, from, from that campfire. And then um, even it, it seems, so we have, I have a buddy, um, he works for, or he, he would go out on the Maryland um, wildfire team um, and absolutely loved it. Like that's like he, he hustles year round, works nonstop. His name is Todd Dudek. I'm gonna throw him a little plug. Love him to death. Great guy. Um, he's a photographer by day and um, volunteer fireman. Great guy. And then did that stuff when the season came up. Um, and he would he like he just loves going out there. And I remember you know talking with him during those those couple years because it seemed like those wildfires, you know, the campfire, and then those couple years after that were just horrendous. Um, and, and, and in talking with him, it seemed like they were kind of cyclical, like you'll get a, a couple bad years and then not so bad, then it gets worse again. Um, so is that, is that kind of the case? Like it burns off and then it, you get that regrowth or, um, or is that just like, where there's just some anomalies, do you think? Well, here, here's where I'm going to not make the forest service happy, but, uh, in the last, uh, I would say 30 years, number one, the NEPA, the environmentalists have shut down the logging industry. Um, and I, I really have a tough time with that. Um, as I say, trees are like asparagus. Uh, every year in California, we increase our growth in the forest by 8 billion, billion board feet. We harvest about a half a million, a fraction. Oh, wow. So you can see what's happened over the last 30 years uh since the logging has gone out and i have to you know my grandfather moved to uh above paradise there's a place called sterling city in Megalia. uh that was called diamond diamond match at that time a big logging center in northern california well they moved up there in 1922 so i i've come from a, a logging family uh i just have a tough time with people not wanting to harvest our, our timber because again, uh, it's going to be harvested by nature, which is by fire, or it can be harvested in a positive way, which means we uh, can create jobs and we can do this. Back when we were harvesting timber, 40% uh, of that money uh, went into our school system in the local towns where we've had high schools close in towns. We've lost probably over 80 to 100,000 jobs in Northern California in the last 30 years, it's been devastating to us, but yeah, uh, I'm, you know, I'm wandering on this, I'm getting away from smoke jumping, but there is, there is a connection to our current, uh, man, what, what the forest service called managed fire and they fight fire a lot different than we did. Uh, I just came back from a smoke jumper board meeting in Boise. Uh, we held on Monday and we have a current, uh, smoke jumper forest service employee on there and I just said I'm looking at areas that we used to jump 20 and 30 years ago and now they're too steep and too rough to jump now you're telling me the hills have gotten steeper well the forest service is into a no risk situation okay you as a structure firefighter are going to you're going to risk your ass at times. You're not going to stand out there in front and 
And that's what I, I see right now in wildfire. They're standing out in front and they do what's called the box theory. So we're going to box in this fire. And sometimes I think the left side of the box is the Pacific Ocean. The bottom of the box is Mexico and the top of the box is Canada. I mean, uh, been a million acres here, a million acres there. And now they're turning into brush patches. Okay. Mm -hmm. What is going to burn so quick? The brush. Yeah. So um, I guess I, I wouldn't be a popular person with the Forest Service today. Uh, my idea, goal is, not goal, idea is we should attack wildland firefighters just like city firefighters do. In other words, you do not pull up your engine in front of a house and sit there and say, well, shall we get to it today or tomorrow? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do we stop? Do we stop the fire here at this house, yeah. or do we go to the block end of the block and yeah. stop it there? You know, then I look back when we jump out of Cave Junction, just twenty-four of us. We were like family, but we were off the ground in ten minutes. Wow. We hit these fires when they were a quarter acre. When when two people could actually do the job. Um, that is bygone. That is past. So, um, you know, and. and Sooner or later, uh, not sooner or later, but I'm gonna. I'd like to get into the history of smoke jumping so your listeners can understand how did this idea start and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Let's um let's introduce Trevor. So Trevor is the owner of Strike the Box uh, Training, so the company that we're that we do this for. Um, okay. Trevor, good evening, sir. How are you, buddy? Something something's not right, buddy. We can't hear you. Chuck Trevor is the he's currently the fire chief uh, in Southern Florida or I said Central Florida. Uh, we worked together in Ocean City before he retired as uh, one of our battalion chiefs and shift commanders okay. uh, and then moved down there uh, for his retirement gig. Any luck? Chuck, this is this is also the most problems we've had with the website and all the time that we've been doing this. <laughs> uh, I'm just happy to be here, so we'll just we'll roll with it. Absolutely. Well, while, while Trevor's figuring his stuff out, let's yeah. go ahead and talk about the history of the smoke jumpers. Yeah, I'd like to. Uh, I've been doing Smoke Jumper magazine for about twenty plus years right now, and along the way. Uh, we've done a, an exchange program with Russian smoke jumpers, and I had a couple uh, smoke jumpers that went to Russia and came across this beautiful narrative and document about the start of Russian, Russian smoke jumping. And they translated it, and back in 2009, I read, I ran in Smoke Jumper magazine 
uh, Birth of Smoke Jumping 1, 2, 3, and 4, and four issues. And, uh, you know, to me, this was, we getting Trevor. You there, buddy? Can, can you hear me yet? Gotcha. Got All right. Strong work. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that was that, Hey, how you doing, Chuck? Thank you for being on. And uh, that was completely by accident. That had nothing to do with any kind of internet skill whatsoever. But um, happy to be here. Okay. Uh, let me pick up with the Russians because yes. when I got this, I thought, "Wow, uh, this document has hasn't been printed before." And uh, I just copied off the first page from 2009. The Russians came up with the idea in 1934. Uh, their, their first idea was they, they came up with the idea of dropping retardant. Uh, and they're not backwards. They were way ahead of us. But the gentleman uh, who uh, came up with this idea of dropping retardant said, you know, it diffused too much before it reached the ground. And his idea was uh, drop it with a parachute in a large bladder. Uh, Russian firefighting is a little different than ours. It's, a, it's the same type of territory I jumped in in Alaska. In other words, zillions of acres of, of smaller trees, you know, uh, 15, 10, 20 foot trees, nothing like Southern Oregon. And uh, the gentleman's name, <laughs> I have to read it, Georgi Alexandrovich McKeeve. And uh, he was an interesting gentleman. He was a gutsy guy. He said in writing this, he's a professional forester. He says, I've been through several wars, which I guess everybody who lives in Russia has been through. And he got airsick easily. So I said, number one, this guy had a lot of things working against him. Age, airsickness. But the guy was sharp. And he said, if we're going to put these... Uh, bladders rubber bladders on the ground with retardant in them we need to have people on the ground and what he said in order to do that says people must be dropped by parachute and through his system there uh he proposed the idea of smoke jumping and it wasn't called smoke jumping it's called parachuting uh it was turned down at whatever level it was and he was persistent enough to take it to the next level. And I don't know uh, how their levels of bureaucracy go, but up the line, there were some smarter people and they gave him the thumbs up. And so they started the Russian smoke jumping program. Their idea was a little different within the United States. Their territory is so vast that the idea, and we did this in Alaska, you drop a couple smoke jumpers and they go to the nearest village or settlement and organize local firefighters. Uh, and, and that was how the program started uh, there. And shoot, by 1936, they were going. Uh, Russian smoke jumpers at one time, I think the number is almost up, up to 6,000. Tremendous number. Uh, and I didn't realize how big a territory they have uh, until some of these gentlemen told me a uh, Russia, you know, has 11 time zones. Okay. That almost blows your mind. Um, so I, I don't know whether we, uh, somebody in the United States heard about Russian smoke jumpers or whatever, but in 1939, we ran an experimental program in Winthrop, Washington, 
Uh, we hired four professional uh, parachutists from the Eagle Parachute Company. They proved that we could safely drop men into mountain territory and put out fires. So smoke jumping essentially in the United States started in 1940 at, uh, was not, wasn't Missoula, Montana. Actually, it was uh, uh, Sealy Lake, Montana. And there was a base at Winthrop, Washington. And I, I, I divided smoke jumping into different eras, what I call 40 and 41 uh, people working for the Forest Service off the, off the force were hired. Uh, in 43, there were only seven smoke jumpers left because of the demands of World War II. Uh, smoke jumping was going to fold. It was going to be all over with. And we had uh, about 12,000 conscientious objectors during World War II. Now, conscientious objectors could be objecting for many reasons. Uh, the volunteers that volunteered for smoke jumping put their hand up were from the what is called the peace churches, the Mennonites, the Brethren, and the Quakers. And one of those gentlemen wrote to Washington, D.C., said, you know, we are out here doing what are they? Uh, they're supposed to be doing work of national importance. Well, a lot of these were busy work. Uh, the, the, the CPS guys, instead of national importance, they called it national impotence. So um, they were happy and the Forest Service said, yeah, we'll use these guys. Uh, they were anxious to prove themselves because World War II was what you call a good war so to speak. In other words, the nation was completely behind it at that time. Uh, these guys received a tremendous amount of criticism for their religious objections, and they really wanted to prove themselves. So over the period of 43, 44, and 45, the smoke jumper program was, uh, take, was held together by the uh, conscientious objector groups. And uh, in cave in 43 and 40, excuse me, 43 Cave Junction in McCall, Idaho started. So that was what I call the uh, it's called CPS, Civilian Public Service, the three years of CPS jumpers. In 45, at the end of World War II, uh, the conscientious objectors were released. They were drafted the same way as people were drafted into the military. They returned. Most of them were Midwest farmers. Um, what they couldn't understand, I kind of laugh a little bit at this, what they couldn't understand was the government eight-hour workday. In other words, if you're a Midwest farmer, uh, you got up in the dark <laughs> and you quit work in the dark. Uh, I, I just heard, I, I got close to these CPS guys. Uh, they said once you put those guys shoveling the ground, you couldn't stop them. Uh, they knew what work was. So I, I really love those guys. 46, no smoke jumpers. They sent all the CPS guys home. Then I have what I call the veterans years. 46, 47, 48, 49. 99% of the smoke jumpers that in 1946 were World War II people. They had no firefighting experience. Most of them were airborne. Okay, they saw... They were airborne. They came back. 
what are we going to do? Something with a parachute. And so uh, I, I've just written so many stories on these. Uh, I thought I wouldn't want to be a trainer of these guys coming back from World War II. Okay. They're 25 years old, 22, 23, 27. Mentally, they're 38. Mm-hmm. How do you enforce rules and regulations on these guys? Um, so that was smoke jumping for, I'd say, up to about 1950. And then we got into what's called the student years. And that was like myself. Uh, as I was getting a university degree, I did this in the summer. And then I kept going because I was the teacher. So we had a tremendous turnover of smoke jumpers. People would jump two or three years, get their education, go off into what we call the world. Uh, This continued up till about 1980, 85. And now the current smoke jumpers are uh, professionals, the same as you would have for a structure firefighter and and that sort of thing. Um, They half are year round professionals and the other half work about six months a year. Uh, a lot of them actually don't want to work year round because the beer is cheap in Mexico and the ski slopes are good in Colorado. <laughs> so we've got that situation. Um, but smoke jumping, you know, it, what I contrast it with now, we took so much pride in getting out there and keeping a fire small. And we have this continual uh, drumbeat now that fire has been part of our ecology and is supposed to be. But I have to respond. Uh, there's a time and a place for wildfire, and there's a time and a place for uh, prescription burning. The time and a place isn't when we in California are in the midst of a 1,200-year drought. Uh, we had 40 days of over 100 degrees last summer. Um I I am completely opposed to this controlled burning situation. Uh, The amount of smoke and particulate matter we put into the air is tremendous. Uh, Sometimes here in Chico, we've been under smoky conditions, uh, which, you know, you can't go out. You shouldn't go out without a mask for six and seven weeks a year. Wow. Uh, And there's enough science nowadays that shows that Particulate matter in wildfire smoke is very dangerous. There's going to be health, uh, health, uh, the negative health results of this. We're going to see it 20 years down the line, though. Um, It's not going to appear right now, but it's going to appear. We're going to have a a national health problem in the West in a few in years down the line. I I just don't see the strategy. Uh, If we want to return wildfire to the uh, landscape. I think there's better ways to do it than what is called managed wildfire during uh, extreme burning conditions. Yeah. So one, once uh, I, I think I've, I don't think I was very um, direct with the question. So once you got, once you were hired and they brought you in as a smoke jumper, what, what was your training from there? Um, obviously I had to jump out of a plane with a parachute, but then, then, did it, does it basically go back to wildland firefighting? Um, so like, what was that like once you got hired? Once I got hired, I went to a base, a little bitty town, Southern Oregon. They didn't know anything about, uh, I 
came out of Chico Seder. I, at that time, I was a varsity track runner, complete, competed in the 400-meter hurdles and that sort of thing. I found out that uh, the physical training was very strenuous. Uh, there's a lot of techniques uh, besides parachute. Uh, we went into, at that time, about a five-week training situation. And it was everything from parachute manipulation, exit of an airplane, uh, Southern Oregon, tree climbing. Uh, I am not a good tree climber. I hated to climb trees. Uh, uh, 200-foot trees scared the heck out of me. Uh, how do you get out of a 200-foot tree? Uh, it's a repelling process. So uh, within our canvas uh, smoke jumper outfits, we had... Uh, what were called D-rings sewn into the into it. And that's what we use for repelling device. We carried 150 foot of, uh, it's actually glider tow rope. It's called let down rope. So if we hung up, we knew how to get out of that tree. Uh, a lot of, you know, we spent most of our time on learning how to use the parachute, learning how to get out of trees and that sort of thing. Uh, not a lot of time on wildland firefighting because most of us had a pretty good idea how to do that. Uh, tree falling. Uh, falling a piece of timber is one of the most dangerous things in the world. Uh, people have no idea, you know, the, the longevity of a logger in Northern California, Southern Oregon uh, might have been age 45 before, you know, you make that one mistake that gets you. Mm -hmm. uh, so we spent time on tree falling. Uh, when you jump a fire, most of the fires we jumped were lightning strikes. The, uh, the deal in smoke jumping is we hit areas where you couldn't drive to or you couldn't walk to for a day or two. If you could drive to it with an engine, there's no sense having people jump out of an airplane. We were back at times 20, 30 miles from the nearest trail or the nearest road. So we had a lightning strike hits a tree, the fire's up in the tree, or a snag, which is a dead tree, you've got to fall that thing, and it's it's tricky. I mean, many people have been killed by falling snags, the dead trees. It's it's uh, You have to be skilled to do that. Uh, I'm so far back, we didn't use chainsaws at that time. We had what was called a misery rip. Uh, the misery rip was a six-foot uh, cross-cut saw. So uh, that was our training, and... Uh, the physical end of it was every day we trained at least an hour on, on uh, what we call PT, physical training. Um, the amount of, uh, it, it attracted a lot of athletes. Uh, as I got later on, I went from a jumper to a squad leader to a foreman position. And uh, at, you know, at one time I had, one of the top hurdlers in the United States. I had an all-American cross-country runner from Colorado. I had the da 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 So uh, it was interesting from that standpoint. Uh, I think the, the best thing about smoke jumping is the people we met, just super individuals. Yeah. So then you said um, a lot of times when you go up to like Alaska, those, those kind of places where you would – jump into a place and then hike to the village and recruit them. Um, a lot of like, so we, uh, uh, it was over a year ago, 
we had on the show a lady with the Alaska State Fire Marshal's office mm-hmm. who went out to those those very remote villages and taught them their basic firefighting um, because like they didn't they didn't have anything like their fire truck would be uh, like a UTV with a trailer and a pump on it and it was basically good luck so what how was that when you guys were when you went up to Alaska and, and working with those folks it was interesting when I went to Alaska I went from a base of 24 to a base of 80 in Alaska uh, Alaska is so big, um, we would sometimes we'd be two or three hundred miles from the nearest road. Uh, that meant that uh, in Southern Oregon, what we call packouts. Uh, after a fire, you have to put on 110 pounds worth of gear and pack all that crap to the nearest road until somebody picks you up. In Alaska, there's no way you you wait for a helicopter to pick you up, or you go uh, to a lake and a float plane will pick you up. But uh, we at my time i didn't work much with native crews um we jumped a lot of fires and at this time the situation was developing a lot of these fires were started by the natives because they knew that we were going to go to the nearest village and hire firefighters i i remember one fire i jumped Uh. coming down and you could hear when you're on a parachute everything the world is so silent and I was coming down, and I could hear voices. And I got to the ground, and there were these native Alaskan women. And they said they were just picking berries. <laughs> and I said, well, how far is the village away? And one of the ladies said, six miles. I said, would you uh, go back to the village? I'd like to hire 15 of your village people. Okay. She went around the corner, and about 20 minutes later, <laughs> yeah, right. You guys got the picture. It's like. They were sitting 300 yards down the trail <laughs> waiting for the call. So after that, it developed into a policy where uh, we didn't hire anybody from the village in that area. We had to bring them in from another area. Um, oh, wow. But that was fine. We could play the game. Yeah. Trevor, you're muted, buddy. Oh, boom. Trevor. Better? There we go. Okay. You figure I figured it, I had this figured out by now, but. Um, you know, Chuck, I find, um, you know, what you all have done absolutely fascinating and I have a great deal of respect for it. And unlike a structural firefighter, like, and Ben can uh, appreciate these analogies that if we say, okay, um, most of our structures in our downtown area are going to be two and a half, uh, story wood frame structures, so forth and so on. We have a little bit of pre-planning, but for you in the, in the wildland world, you probably really, other than some, uh, to, uh, topographical intelligence or something else, you probably don't have nearly the amount of uh, pre-planning information that we do in the structural world. And just for full disclosure and transparency, uh, and Ben, again, you'll appreciate this analogy. My largest uh, wildland experience is a 20 foot by 40 foot patch of trees behind a 94 street mall. Um, <laughs> and I, I actually, I, I pumped a tanker at a five acre uh, cornfield fire which, you know, Chuck, you probably called, you know, you probably sleep through that. That wouldn't even be something that would, would be of interest. But um, we used to have a lot of guys from the East Coast, which, you know, we're relatively flat topography until you get in the western part of the states. But, um, you know, as Ben had said, you know, we had talked to people, um, you know, from Alaska. We had the opportunity to teach out there and just look at the expanse. But 
you know, looking at some of the just dynamics, and you had touched on some of these before, but some of our folks that used to go out and uh, would prepare for the Western wildland fires, they do their box test and they get on the list, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I found the most interesting, and again, you touched on this a little bit, was there were several, uh, in, depending on the area of the country, there were several Native American tribes that were very, like, very much like their own fire company, if you will. And it was very interesting to them because they were used to the dynamic that, you know, on the East Coast, that if you had a fire or you were part of a department, you went as one group. But there seemed to be uh, quite a bit of segregation or like, you know, you said there's the political and uh, legal foundations of everything that kind of uh, bears into that. So what what's your experience with, um, you know, in, in the CONUS in the continental United States, as far as when the East Coast people would come out to try to integrate uh, what, what's some advice you can give to them? Because you know, still today we have people who want to go out and fight the big Western wildland fires, but really don't understand the complete dynamic of everything that's going on because it's very foreign to us. You know, Trevor, I would, I would think, uh, and it's, it's really interesting early on. Uh, if, uh, and I'm a, a nut on smoke jumper history. I just write, write, write uh, a lot of the earth, uh, the 40s and 50s smoke jumpers came from the East Coast. And you say, well, why in the world did they come from the East Coast? They saw this movie called Red Skies of Montana with Richard Widmark in 1949. And bingo, they're heading west. They're, they're getting lookouts. But what amazing people we've got along the line in our history that have come from the East Coast. Now, currently... Uh, I, I get a lot of people, not a lot, I get a, a, a good number of people that come over our website and say, how can I become a smoke jumper? And a lot are back in the East Coast, and I say, you've got to have wildland firefighting experience. Uh, and the fact that you've been military or structure fire is not going to really help you in the current system. So you've actually got to come out here and get on a hand crew. And... After a hand crew, you've got to get out onto what's called a hotshot crew. And I would say the hotshot crew are, they're type one. Uh, smoke jumpers are called type one. Um, the hotshot crews are the bread and butter of wildland firefighting. I mean, boy, if, if you ever want to put your nose in the dirt and, and do something tough, take a job as a hotshot. So right now, um, you have to have three or four seasons at least of wildland firefighting experience before you even apply to smoke jumping. So, you know, Trevor, maybe I'm dancing around your question, but uh, that's just the way, that's what I advise young people who get a hold of me over our website say, how can I become a smoke jumper? I'm going to say, well, it's not going to happen in one year. And that's what I think is the difference. You're going to have to spend four or five seasons of your life, and, and now the seasons are six and eight months long. Uh, it's going to be a tough haul between if you're a, a, a college or university person and you want to become a wildland firefighter, uh, you're going to have to flip a coin and make a decision there. No, and, and Chuck, I, I get that completely, and I appreciate your candor with that. And just you know, to kind of uh, be on an equal playing field, you had mentioned before about like the respirators that the wildland folks are using, and that's a big uh, conversation right now in the NFPA and. 
again, uh, full disclosure, I'm part of that technical committee for respiratory protection. I sit on a, a, a board where I have a voice in wildland firefighting and I've never done it. So I tried to make sure I meter my voice and you know, understand my capabilities and limitations. But uh, I was talking to a chief from Los Angeles County, and obviously they have the wildland urban interface, just like we do here in Florida. In Maryland, um, again, the wildland urban interface is behind the 94th Street Mall. No offense, Ben, but yeah, we, we, know, where that, we know where that is. I mean, if, 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 if a homeless encampment uh, lights off some, uh, a pine tree behind the 94th Street Mall, that's our brush fire. Uh, for us. So with that being said, um, you know, they, they talked about the difference between people using the, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the PAPRs, the, uh, you know, powered air uh, purifying respirators versus the, you know, uh, N95s. And if you're packing out and trying to go into a warm zone and you're being required because somebody like me who has, you know, this much experience in wildland is saying, Oh yes, absolutely. For respiratory protection, we should do this. But the, to me, the wisdom is in the trenches. Um, how how do you feel that the in, in the big picture of the uh, I I'll say the uh, respiratory protection or the industry standard environment? Um, how how good or bad do you feel that we are as far as addressing the needs of these wildland firefighters? Because again, you know, the folks from the West Coast. You all see this much more than we do. East Coast, in a lot of respects, we do see it, but more on a uh, urban wildland interface. Not so much like a complete, you know, you're being dropped in 50 miles inside of a zone where, you know, the closest village that has three people is, you know, 60 miles away from you. So um, show me that balance a little bit, Chuck, because I, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to take some of that wisdom back to the, the groups that we work with. Wow, Trevor, I don't know as I'm going to have much wisdom. You're way ahead of me on respirators and, and protection. Uh, I don't know if our wildland firefighters are using protective devices. I mean, uh, I haven't heard much talk about that, and I'm in constant communication with hotshot crews and stuff. Okay, well, Chuck, and just uh – Pardon the interruption, but I, I just went recently to, uh, you know, we had a respiratory protection uh, workshop for three or four days. And part of that was respiratory protection. And again, the folks that have spent the time in the trenches said, hey, look, thank you so much for looking out for our people and making sure we have the equipment. But don't tell us how to use the equipment that, you know, we, we know how to use it, but you're dictating how to use it. And again, you know, my, my experience in that tree patch behind the 94th Street Mall is not anywhere useful to that, uh, that wildland firefighter who's being dropped in 60 miles behind a tree line. Um, so that, that's where I'm trying to kind of get some perspective on this is yeah. to see what, you, what are the needs versus what are, what's being pushed in your industry if there's really even any conflict with that right now in your mind. I don't, uh, talking to smoke jumpers, I don't know anybody that does anything but put that bandana up over their nose. <laughs> so, I mean, I, that's a sad answer, Trevor, but um, I, I am completely remiss and unaware of of these devices and, and being worn by wildland firefighters. And I know health-wise, this is probably something we need to be doing, and it's coming 
but uh, I'm way behind. I, I just do not hear of that from, and I get constant feedback from the, the field. So uh, I'm going to have to apologize for not being a good source. No, and, and Chuck, uh, please, and I, I, I mean this, you know, obviously kiddingly and, and uh, flippantly yeah. when I say this, but, uh, you know, I, I, I heard the, a term from one of my friends who serves in, uh, well, and Ben, you're from the Pennsylvania area originally, but one of my friends who serves up in Amish country uh, during the COVID pandemic was very quick to tell me is, you know what, the uh, Amish community really wasn't affected that much by COVID. I was like, really? I'm surprised by that because the communal living, everything else. I said, why is that? He goes, they didn't have television. So, I mean, I, 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 think, I, think, I think a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, we go with what's tried and true. And yeah. um, But I, I was just very curious about that. But Chuck, thank you very much for for your candor in that. But I, I think as long as we can provide the protective equipment without over-legislating it, um, especially yes. when you have people who, you know, like myself, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you, um, it, I am the last one who needs to tell a wildland firefighter how they should do their job. Um, so you know, I, I want to protect them. I want to get the wisdom from the trenches. But at the same time, I have no appetite whatsoever for saying thou shalt do this um, without you know, hearing how they work and what they do and how they perform their duties and say, what can we do for you versus here's what we're going to do for you. So that, that's just kind of my, my mindset. So anyway, um, there ends the sermon. I no no I, I think that's good. Uh, there would be no way that I want to would want to step into the world of structure firefighter and say anything other than speaking my mouth. So uh, I uh, maybe maybe protective devices will be coming. Uh, my point of emphasis right now is um, let's put out these fires before they get big enough to where we need all this, these protective devices. Uh, Trevor, I don't know whether you were on my uh, talking to Ben earlier, but we go through sometimes weeks of uh, very unhealthy air uh, here in Northern California just because of the millions of acres we're burning. So I think we as citizens walking in downtown Chico need to wear that 95 mask, uh, same as the firefighters. Chuck, here, I, here's a question for you. What is the the new and like the what's the what's the big term what's the big thing right now for smoke jumpers so for us with structural firefighting with uh, or like over on the west coast and i'm sure and i know that they're seeing it um in california as well and throughout the country it's the lithium battery issue um with the electric vehicles and micro mobility devices and all that kind of stuff what's the what's the big thing right now that's the that's a big issue for smoke jumpers the big issue now and for smoke jumpers and federal wildland firefighters is pay. I mean, um, I do my best because so many smoke jumpers have actually got into the professions that you guys, they become structure firefighters. You know, they jump a couple of years and if they're smart, they'll work for LA County or something like that and make three times uh, the money. They'll uh, not be sent away for a couple months at a time from their home and their family. So uh, we've been pushing with the, uh, Smoke Jumper Association have been supporting the grassroots firefighters to uh, up the pay. I, it was like $15 an hour. Okay. Uh, and, and I was, you know, I, I had a GAO uh, group call me, all, all these big wigs, you know, GAO is supposed to do investigation. And I said, if I, and I train 
close to 4,000 young people as wildland firefighters. So I've got a pretty good idea of what these kids can do. <clears throat> I say you could go downtown at McDonald's and Subway and make $16 an hour. Why in the world? Uh, fighting wildland firefighter is probably probably the next thing to combat, except there's nobody shooting at you. In other words, it is a tough job. And so uh, the wildland firefighters, what they need now is pay. Uh, they're looking for the same thing as the, as the, uh, the city and county uh, units that come up from Southern California, and that's portal to portal. Um, it's just, it's going to be a long time catching up. Uh, every, the smoke jumpers are probably short 40 to 50 in each the, in the Forest Service and the BOM of meeting their hiring quotas. In other words, who wants to do this job anymore? It used to be pretty attractive. Uh, it's not that attractive now. Uh, after we had the uh, smoke jumper killed in New Mexico two years ago, they were doing an investigation and they said, uh, and I was talking to base manager in Alaska and he said, actually about 20% of the smoke jumpers are homeless. I said, well, what do you mean by that? No, they can't afford to live in Boise. They can't afford to live in these towns. So what are they doing? They're living in their pickup in the parking lot. <laughs> and I say, this is not how you're going to create a professional fire organization. Right. Um, it's a sad deal. Wow. That like, so like, I, I love being able to say that I'm, that I'm a firefighter, that I'm a part of the fire service. I have loved that honor since, since I started. And now that I get to do that as my career, like it, it's, it's fantastic. And I would imagine, and I would certainly hope that being able to say that you're a smoke jumper, like, holy cow, talk about like the feather in your cap. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know anybody that, that does that uh, other than meeting you now virtually um, that does that. And it's just such, it's something that's, it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost so big that I can't comprehend it. And then to find out that they can't, like they don't make a livable wage is absolutely embarrassing. Like the gut, like we need to do better, you know, not, not just as, you know, a, a population, but as a fire service, like, you know, we, we all fight for each other to have better pay and to, you know, better working conditions, all that kind of stuff. Um, like that is like, I, I'm, I'm floored by that. Like that, that's, that's truly sad. It, no, I, really I am sad. too, Ben. I mean, and, and, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I, ben, I am too. That's, that's the first time I'm hearing that. And that's an atrocity because I almost look at that like being a wandering. Uh, it, and of course, you know, I don't have the, the Midwest or West Coast uh, experience, but it's almost like that that ranch hand who goes from you know ranch to ranch or fire to fire, just trying to get picked up somewhere, and mm -hmm. is living by the most frugal means possible. And like uh, Chuck's saying, that might be in the cab of their pickup truck. And uh, I had I had no idea that was even a you know something that we were dealing with in the American Fire Service, let alone these people. And I got to tell you, Chuck. Um, Again, I'm not a wildland guy. I think wildland firefighting, that's way too much like work. I mean, I mean, that that is, you know, and I'll just be very visceral. I mean, it is ass breaking, back breaking, you know, thankless, 
you know, just struggling work for hours and hours and hours on end. Um, so, you know, to me, to, to have that kind of a deficit is it really, it's all, it's almost criminal. What do you think, Ben? Oh, I, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm going to kick this back on the forest service because I've got a hard on for the forest service just because of the way they treat their employees and gentlemen, this has been a system that's been developing over years, over years. When I jumped, uh, there was no overtime. It was, everything was straight time. Uh, it, it and, we did an interesting article. Uh, I had a, a guy I jumped with in, in Alaska who is a fire captain in Southern California. He's retired now. He lived in Carpinteria. So, but he went from smoke jumping to, uh, I think, L.A. County or something like that. He did a super article, and I could um, send it to you from Smoke Jumper Magazine. He interviewed in Southern California 23 ex-smoke jumpers and uh, that went to L.A. County you know, uh, Santa Barbara County, stuff like that. Well, the reasons they went, number one, pay. But one of the main reasons was being able to have a family uh, and being able to live in a house and not be like a smoke jumper where you're on the road four or five months a year. Uh, the Boise smoke jumpers, uh, you, you dial in at Boise and there's no smoke jumpers there. They're stationed in Oh, you'd love to be stationed in Winnemuc and Nevada, uh, Elko, you know, all these uh, water holes out in the middle of the desert. Uh, and then, like one of the Redmond smoke jumpers said, you know, when we get sent from Redmond in Oregon to Redding in California, we get down there and worry from our families and stuff, and then we get paid eight hours a day on standby. Holy Toledo. Um uh, we really need to make some changes. When uh, I met with uh, the, the meeting I had on Monday, I talked to one of the current smoke jumpers and I said, what? they make about 60,000 a year uh, for the type of work you do. And, and you are right about them being the top of the scale. They're probably some of the most highly trained wildland firefighters in the United States. In other words, you don't get there without putting in your dues. And then if you look at the smoke jumpers now, uh, half of them are actually jumping fires, but the other half are out of what are called single resource. So they're going out as uh, tanker bosses. They're going out as cat bosses. They're going out as air, uh, air support, something like that uh, in order to get their qual cards signed. Uh, there's going to be things that are just going to have to change to make this, uh, something where we could sustain these. And I'm going to touch on one more point. Uh, we used to have what's called local hire. And I, the Forest Service during fire season says we can't get firefighters. And during my career, my job for the Mendocino, I went around to two universities and local high schools, and I talked to the seniors. If I couldn't get 10 seniors out of every high school in Northern California, to join into a fire crew in the summer, I would be a failure. Well, now they don't do that anymore. They have what's called a centralized hiring system in Albuquerque. So the young man or young lady in Alturas, California, applies to Albuquerque. They give he or she a job in Colorado. Well, how, when you're 18 years of age, can you move to Colorado and at, at pennies at 15 bucks an hour and <laughs> pay the rent because there's no housing available anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm saying we need to get rid of this bureaucracy crap and and give our I'm, I'm a teacher and a coach, so I, I just love young people. Uh, I want young people to get a job uh, with my uh, my on call crews. I felt the best thing I could do is give an 18 year old the first job they had in their life to start their resume. I thought that everybody in their life, if you want to appreciate food and water, ought to fight one season of wildfire. You'll have a different perspective when you come home. Uh, right now, the Forest Service with this centralized hiring is just killing our work pool. Uh, well, so much about bureaucracy. Okay. Yeah, and it's also it's also you see. And Trevor, Trevor understands this as well, and, and and I do too, not to the same extent. But you see the job that you had, and the love, and and all the fun stuff, and all the great things that you did throughout your career, and now you see the organizations and and the bureaucracy just flushing it down the tube, and it hurts. You know, it's not, it's 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 a shame at what they're doing, what's happening to it, and and that's that's part of it like you see you see what great it used to be and the pride and all that kind of stuff that came with it and now you see what it is and it's just it's it's heartbreaking so i i can't imagine the the your true feelings and not that you haven't shared some of those with us but i i I don't imagine that we've gotten the entire um you know chuck feeling on on all of this it 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 is when i talk to uh a current smoke jumper on, on Monday. Uh, the first thing I, I found out is uh, there are no risk. Uh, how, okay, how can you safely do, not safely, how can you do a job with no risk? Okay, as I said, you guys don't stand out in front of the building and flip a coin and say, are we going to go in today or are we going to wait a couple of days? Uh, and I'm talking to this young man. He said, we are so risk adverse with the Forest Service now that jumper airplanes on the way to the fire have been canceled by people who have the local, they have no idea what smoke jumpers can do. In other words, I say, let the plane get over the fire. Let the people that know what they're doing determine whether we're going to jump that fire or not. Don't let some dispatcher sitting in a chair with four wheels make the decision when he or she the probably closest they've ever got to a fire is when they struck a match or something like that. They, they got no friggin' clue. Uh, yeah. but this is what we're doing nowadays, gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Chuck, I, I could not agree with you more. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And again, I'll, I'll go back to that uh, term I used before the wisdom is in the trenches and you know, the people in administration should be there to provide resources and allocate resources. But you're going to have a guy like me because I've got an extra bugle or two on my collar. Uh, and again, you, you know, I was very transparent to say, you know, my capabilities and limitations of wildland firefighting, but you're going to have a guy like me saying yes or no, when the people who do this day in and day out, and, you know, they call a, you know, a thousand acre wildland fire Tuesday, um, you know, where I'm, I would be freaked out over that. So I, you know, I really think as you're saying, there needs to be a better communication between the you know the command and the operations, if you will, of these uh, of these incidents, 
to ha you have a better deployment model. I mean, that's it's 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 that simple because it's really easy to make a decision um, in the EOC when you have limited information and err on the side of caution because you know you don't want the news cycle to be against you at eleven o'clock. But nevertheless, yeah, you know, there's people who um, they can tell you, yes, this is within our capabilities, or hey, look. This is not a good idea. Uh, you know, let's wait till this weather system goes, or let's you know, let's wait till you know, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever the case is, um, to to make a better you know, operational or logistical or uh, strategic or tactical decision. And um, yeah, I, Chuck, Chuck, I feel for you because this same thing is happening in the structural world as well. Um, we just put a different name over it. That's it. <laughs> I. Uh, after this is over with, I'm going to email Ben. I want to get uh, both of your mailing addresses because I, I want to put you on the Smoke Jumper magazine mailing list. It, it would just be educational and give you an idea uh, of what's going on out here. Um, in Northern California, as I say, we're in Chico, and we're just right on the campfire burned within three miles of, of the edge of Chico. Um, it's going to get worse as the warming situation and climate change goes. Next will be Southern Oregon. Then we'll be over in Idaho. Uh, I will long be gone by that time, but 30 or 40 years from now, this whole thing is, is going to snowball on us. And I just uh, am frustrated with the current attitude that, that even though wildfire is a part of the ecology, you don't do it under these conditions. I mean, I am so tired of hearing about how the Native Americans did it way back when. And what I'm saying is there weren't 303 million people in the country at that time. There wasn't the urban interface at that time. And uh, I, I think the Native Americans were not any different than the rest of us. In other words, what they did with wildfire was to benefit them, to make their hunting better, to make their village protection better, whatever it was. But once they lit a fire, they didn't care where it ended. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just going to say, I really think this country was sculpted in the 8th and 9th and 10th centuries by lightning. But nobody mentions that. And I'm going to use an example. Northern California here. On an afternoon, a typical lightning storm in Northern California will have 12,000 12, strikes. We will probably get 800 fires out of that. We will probably get 70 to 80, which really need attention. But this happens day after day after day. So gentlemen, if you go back into the 1012 and 1013 and 1014 and whatever century, that's how our country at that time, wildfire kept the forest clear. Our fuel load in these forests is overwhelming now. Uh, since we stopped the logging industry in, in 1980, uh, as I said earlier, in, Cal Northern, in California, 8 billion more feet of new timber every year. And then the next year, 8 billion more. Well, right now in our forests, uh, instead of the trees being like this, they're like this. It's like a jungle. Um, and if we don't clear it, 
uh, and logging can be a part of it. And I know the environmentalists hate logging. We want to save every tree. And I've always said to those people, good, let's go to your house. Let's take every wood product in your house and throw it in the front yard and burn it. What will you have left? You'll be living in a nylon tent. Uh, uh, as I was writing, uh, I wrote a book called um, Smoke Jumpers and the CIA because that was an interesting part of smoke jumping. And I was going to Vietnam and Laos to do, do research on that. And I see what is happening to the hardwoods and the, the timber in Southeast Asia. So we don't harvest our timber here, but we have no qualms about cutting down other people's trees. So, wow, I got really off, didn't I? Uh, it's no, all good. No, I, uh, I, that's the great thing not, about not, this. We, go ahead, Chair. Oh, no, I was just going to say, Chuck, not really, because you know, I've always felt, um, I, I tell you what, you and I could have some great conversations. Yes. I've always felt that you should be a, a good steward of the environment and take care of Mother Nature, because, but, you know, a lot of things are cyclical, but there's, there's a balance. And what you just said, and I've heard this not just from you, but from some other people out West, and I don't have an appreciation of this because you know, we just don't have the same topography. But like you said, when there's a certain amount of um, forestation, deforestation that takes place, separates you know, the, the fire load from each other, then, you know, th there's a balance there. If, it, if it's too thin, okay, we're, we're overcutting, we're overdoing, we're you know, taking resources. But when you have things that you know, used yeah. to be like this and now they're like this, I mean, that's simple mathematics. And I'm not a math guy, but I can even figure that out. So, Well, gentlemen, have you guys heard of the spotted owl? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. That was the first NEPA uh, lawsuit, the environmentalist sued, because we got to save the spotted owl. So that shut down logging in Washington, excuse me, Oregon, and well, actually the West Coast. Uh, so since that time, again, our trees are growing like asparagus. We put... 100,000 people out of jobs. We close schools, communities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> the cartels have moved in with the marijuana industry. Northern California is like the Golden Triangle in Laos, except it's in California. Uh, things have gone to pot. Uh, it's, we're, just, we're just not doing things right. And the key to force is right now we need to manage force. We don't manage them anymore. If you look at the Forest Service, the professional foresters are about one third of what we had 20 and 30 years ago when we really had good forest management. We, we took care of rivers, we took care of streams, we took care of roads, drainages. Right now, uh, we're spending five billion with a B a year on wildfire. And like, like they said in that, uh, that Tom Cruise movie, just follow the money. In other words, this is a good way to fight fire. Let's box it in because we could be here for 21 days. Da -da 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 -da. What is the reason to put this fire out? Mm -hmm. you know, big, and look at the air tanker industry. We keep getting big air tankers. 747s for crying out loud. I've always advocated one 747, I could have 20 of these fire boss aircrafts. They're a little single engine aircraft. They can scoop off of lakes and waters. They drop 800 gallons. They can reload in 48 seconds. Uh, if I would spread these all over 20 of them around Northern California, 
much better than one 747 flying out of Sacramento, making one drop and you never see him again. I, I'd love to have these little fire bosses rotating. I'd like to be a jumper on the ground with a fire boss and communicating and say, drop your next load here. Drop your next load here. That pilot goes over to the lake 10 miles away. He's back in 10 minutes. Boom, boom, boom. We're not using that. Uh, the air tanker industry is big bucks, gentlemen. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. to me, when I see a 747 flying over, uh, it's what they call the CNN drop. You know, they're dropping from 3,000 feet for crying out loud. All this big, beautiful pink comes down and everybody sits at home and says, oh, look at what we're doing to this fire. Well, we're not doing shit to this fire. We're just, we just blew $150,000. You know, we have got our head so far, I call it the anal, cranial, anal, the whole cranial anal disease. That's head up your ass disease, you know. Um, it's, it's a sad, whoops. You're good. Thank You're you. good. <laughs> <laughs> we, every, every week we submit a, a, a waiver to the FAA or oh, FCC, okay. <laughs> so it's okay. We had a show a long time ago where we started doing that. We had a. The guy came on and we knew it was going to be trouble. So we started submitting them. <laughs> well, um, it's, you know, I like to tell it like it is. I, I get so discouraged uh, going back to the days when we took so much pride. We were like you guys. The siren goes off. You guys want to be there instantly. We wanted to do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot of pride in fighting most of our fires. We called them two manners, just two jumpers. And that's talk about spreading your your manpower out. We could if we get there in New Mexico one season, uh, we had 420 fire jumps. What we did, we were in a DC three and we followed the lightning storms. We got up in the afternoon of the Gila Forest in New Mexico is eight to ten thousand feet. It's the sort of the continental divide. We followed the lightning storms. Boom, a smoke, we jumped it. Well, shoot. The average fire that summer is one-tenth of an acre because we caught the fire in the same tree that was struck by lightning. And I told that to a current jumper. I said, why don't you guys load up the aircraft and follow the storm? Oh, he said, what a wonderful idea. You know, like, geez, I just invented bread or something. I mean, holy moly. <laughs> Everything old is new. Yeah. Guys, you know, it's like I, some, I feel like we're in the lost world. What do you do? We, we come with King Arthur or somebody. This is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we're, we're at about an hour and 15 minutes. So, um, it, we are definitely open to a, a, a round two in the future. If you're interested, Chuck, if you'd like to come back on, oh, I'm sure there's plenty more to talk about. I, I know I have more questions, um, about smoke jumping and, and I'd love to get you back on and chat some more. Um, so with, but with that being said, um, I think let's go ahead and wrap it up for tonight. And sure. then, you know, like I said, we'll, we'll be in contact to get you back on. Uh, cause I think, I think there's still more great stuff to talk about. I, I want to hear about some of the, some of the fires that you've been on and some oh. of the stuff, um, that you've done, uh, operationally, uh, and, and more about what you're doing, um, as the editor of smoke, smoke jumper magazine. So, um, with that being said, Trevor, I'm going to kick it down to you for your closing thoughts. 
All right, Brother Ben, I appreciate that very much. Um, Chuck, thank you so much for being on tonight. I think I've learned more about wildland firefighting in the last hour and 15 minutes than I have in 36 years of a fire service career. And I mean that uh, sincerely. I think I think it's great to hear you know, the perspective from people who've done this and who are doing it. And you know, just like in our industry, in the structural world, um, just to see the the impediments, the politics, you know, all the stuff that weigh into keeping us from doing our job when a lot of it just seems to be common sense. And unfortunately, some of those things get regulated out of our industry. Um, but I'm hoping the pendulum kind of swings back in the direction that it needs to. And, um, you know, very interesting stuff. And I agree with you, Ben, if, um, if we can get, you know, Chuck and some of the smoke jumpers back on, because I think this is a very um, unsung part of our fire service history in the United States. And there's just so much to it that we don't even realize. And especially where more and more, you know, I'm in South Florida now, and we do have a lot of wildland urban interface, which is completely different than, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres in the wildland of Oregon, Washington, California, Alaska. But, you know, we're being, we're being kind of pushed in that direction. But a lot of us who have the, I guess, the bigger voice in the fire service, if you will, are pushing from the structural side because that's our frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And right, wrong, or indifferent, um, you know, I think we need to have these conversations. And again, I'll use the term over and over again, you know, the wisdom is in the trenches. The people who've done the job um, have a lot to say. Uh, You know, sometimes their voices aren't heard, but I really think that there's a lot of great information that we have out here. And, you know, you know again, you know, we, we can put all the BS aside and, you know, what can we do to make this industry better for all of us? And I'm very glad I'll just say this as kind of a side closing note. Um, up until somewhat recent years, the wildland firefighting community was never considered part of the firefighting community. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I was just at National Fire Academy uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, if a wildland firefighter was injured, killed in line of duty, oh, that, that's those guys, not us guys. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all of us. And, you know, I'm sorry, you know, we, you know, yes, we have our slings and arrows of structural firefighting and, you know, what we deal with, but guess what? My, my fat, happy ass has not been on the edge of a slope and had a, you know, a fire burning up, uh, you know, a, the, the side of a mountain where I've had to take shelter and be a baked potato underneath a, uh, you know, a thermal blanket that is not within my wheelhouse. And I can't even imagine that. So, you know, I'm, I'm just glad that you know, we're kind of holistically looking at all of our brothers and sisters in the fire service, whether it's, you know, aircraft, wildland, structural hazmat, you know, I'm glad we're kind of all coming underneath the same umbrella now and kind of getting out of our silos. But, um, you know, Chuck, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you giving your perspective. And I look forward to more of that because I, I think it's very important for the American Fire Service. And Ben, thank you for uh, taking the initiative tonight. My, my son, um, actually right now, I'm, you know, shaking like a, a dog crapping razor blades. Um, my son's at his first prom right now. So hoping it's going well. That's why I was a little bit late coming on. I had to drop him off. But, uh, yeah, I wish you guys the best of luck, and and thank you, for, you know, thank you both for what you do. Chuck, you want to give us some final thoughts? Yeah, gentlemen, I 
I've enjoyed this an hour 15. I had no idea we went that fast. Right. Uh, what I'm going to do, Ben, I'm going to communicate directly with you. I want to add Perfect. both of you guys to the magazine because I think that will be educational. Uh, Perfect. And I want to do this in the future because this has been a real pleasure talking to you guys. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. I'm also going to get your mailing address. We're going to send you some some strike the box uh, stuff that we have. Uh, just as a little thanks for coming on and joining sure. us. Um, and like I said, we'll be we'll continue that communication back and forth to, to set a date to get you back on. Because like I said, there's there's more that we want to hear um, about smoke jumping. And, and like I said, I want to hear some of the stuff that that you've done. You know, it's certainly different now than what it was. Um, yes. You know, the structural firefighting is different now than when I started. So I want to hear, you know, like what let's 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 get down to the nitty gritty. Let's hear about Chuck back in the day. You know, this is good. I, I didn't talk much about jumping fires and about experiences. I, I got into uh, what is concerning me now, and that's the political situation. So I'll do a better job next time, guys. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's, it, it was a great job tonight because I think, okay. I think like we talked about, you know, the, the, the issues that the current yeah. uh, wildland firefighters and smoke jumpers are facing, like that's stuff that, that, you know, I like to consider myself pretty well educated on the current needs and the issues in the fire service, but would have never known. Um, so no, I think, I think, well, I think the conversation tonight was fantastic and, and I'm, I'm super excited. Um, I, I typically don't go back and listen to our shows, but I'm going to go back and listen to this one. Um, just to, just cause I know there's always stuff that I missed. Okay. No. Um, so just to, some closing thoughts here and some stuff that we have coming up. So uh, in two weeks, on May 11th, we have Eric. Trevor, what's what's Eric's last name? How do you pronounce that from the uh, National yeah. Fire Academy? It's Eric Gablix. Um, he's from the National Fire Academy. He's the superintendent. And basically, the premise is that the uh, you know National Fire Academy is exactly what it is. It's our national fire training school, the Emergency Management Institute. And, um, you know, it's so many different things wrapped up in one, but we want to make sure that we uh, promote that because it's a very underutilized resource and most of the classes are free. Awesome. Awesome. So he's coming on in two weeks on May 11th. Uh, so that, that's a great show. Um, we've already planned May 25th and I apologize. I forget who we've got there. Um, this, this show is going to go live tomorrow as a podcast on all of the podcast platforms. I'll continue to follow the Facebook and social media stuff for Strike the Box. If you're interested in more smoke jumping stuff, smokejumpers.com. It's all one word. Smokejumpers.com is the National Smoke Jumpers Association. And you can also go there and um, see the Smoke Jumper magazine that Chuck was talking about. Uh, you know, kind of looking through there. They've got some great stuff, some more history. The articles that Chuck was talking about that he's written about the history and then all kinds of current events and stuff um, that they have are there. Um, one last or a couple last things before we close out. I want to share this. I throw this guy up here. I don't know if anybody knows this kid, but he's this is Trevor Sun Kai at prom or going to prom. <laughs> Says you need to be careful, have fun, have a great night. Um, so Kai, we hope you have a great time, buddy. Um, some other real quick shout outs. Mike Wood. Uh, one of our, our regular co-hosts was could not join us tonight. His daughter is being inducted to the National Honor Society at school. Um, so that's awesome stuff. Congrats. Um, and 
anybody that, that is out at FDIC, a lot of our previous guests have been instructors there. So we hope you guys are having a great time um, and, and having a safe time out at FDIC, get, get some education. More importantly, what you do with that education when you go back to your departments is huge. So make sure that you share that. Um, that's, that's one of the things that I've always learned was a big part of FDIC was sharing that information when you get back to your departments. So with that being said, cheers, gentlemen. Thank you for a great night. Chuck, thank you, sir. It was a great show. Great, Chuck, guys. You. you betcha. Thank you. And we'll see you guys soon. I got it. God bless.